Hey, good morning. Welcome to, to Journey Church. My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. And, uh, and thank you for participating in what we're calling Family Sunday. Our hope is just maybe to provide some opportunities a few times a year, whether it's in the middle of the fall or maybe it's in the middle of the summer, where we try to just bring the family together at times. And that, in, and that includes kids. And, and so this morning, I know parents, maybe this might raise stress a little bit. Kids, you might get a little bit bored, but I, I make two promises. Well, I, they say under promise and over deliver, don't they? But I'll make two commitments or attempts to one, keep it short, and two, kids, I'll try to at least engage you at some point in this morning. So hang with me, try to listen, but I actually can't think of a better moment in the, in the history of, of like the world, but also in the story of Jesus for our kids to be in here with us, to hear about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, um, if you haven't been here with us for a while, you maybe don't know this, but the, if you have, you do, that we've been in this series in John for, for well over a year now. And we're just kind of beginning to wrap it up. These are the last four weeks. These are the last four weeks that we're calling Go and Tell. Now, on a side note, but it'll, it'll come back in just a minute, I realize that maybe this is just a little bit too early to be talking about this, but... Um, and maybe I'm getting a bit out over my skis, but is it, is it too early right now to begin talking about Christmas? And I, there's, you, I know there's different responses. I don't know. The kids are like, yes, please, let's just skip Thanksgiving and go straight to Christmas. I think that would be fantastic. And, and I realize that Christmas is still a little bit a ways, but it, it feels like it's just around the corner. Advent will be starting in about four weeks, and then it's four weeks until Christmas. And, and the reason I, I ask that, and the reason I, I kind of bring that up, not to maybe cause any conflicts at home, or I know that there's deep conflicts between whether or not you can start playing Christmas music in November. I know that that's controversial, but, but as, I, as I was looking at this passage, as I was reading about the resurrection of Jesus this week, I was reminded that although Christmas is extremely significant and a wonderful time to celebrate the arrival of, of hope in the birth of Jesus, we would never have a Christmas. We'd have no reason to celebrate Christmas. There would be no reason to, to put on this celebration of Christmas if we never had Easter. If we had never had the death and, and the resurrection of Jesus, it was the death and the resurrection of Jesus that changed everything in a moment for those who would accept and who would follow Jesus and his invitation to follow him. And that's why even though it might be just a little bit weird this morning, we're going to talk about Easter in October. So last week, if you were here, Mitchell just mentioned it, we kind of finished chapter 19. And chapter 19 was a rough chapter. I mean, it, it's, it ends with Jesus' death on the cross, with his body being taken down from the cross where it's being wrapped in linen, prepared for burial, placed in a tomb. And that's where the story ends. And, and I was so grateful for Jamie's invitation last week to just not bring resolution to the story, not to tie a bow on top and have us leave feeling better about everything, but rather to step into last week without resolution and just step into this, this period of, of like, now what? So Jesus died on the cross and, and now what? And I know that most of us know the story. A spoiler alert, Jesus is alive, right? Like, I think we are, we're all we're kind of on the same page around that. But, but for those who watched Jesus die, for those who 
removed his body from the cross, for those who wrapped his body in linen and placed it in a tomb, for those who walked away from Golgotha that evening, they didn't know what was going to happen. They only knew what had happened. And they left that place in defeat. They left that place devastated. They left that place mourning. They left that place hopeless. And it's okay for us to to linger in that space. It was okay for us to linger in that space with them for a moment because the reality is, is that there may be times when we come into a day like today where we're feeling defeated, where we're feeling devastated, where we're feeling hopeless, where we're we're mourning, whatever that might be going on in our lives. And, And we don't always have resolution coming on the third day, but we can learn to wait with hope, wait for Jesus, wait for the resurrection, wait for the healing, wait for the salvation, because he promises that it, that it will come. And so this morning, we're going to kind of pick up right at that point where they left devastated and hopeless, honestly, probably sat around for a day wondering, at least wondering just what in the world is going on. And then Sunday morning rolls around. Now this morning, since today's a little bit different, I'm going to read from a different Bible this morning. This is the, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And, and if, you don't have, if you have little children, you don't have a copy of this, let me encourage you to get one. This is the way that Natasha and I, we, how we kind of shaped the story of Jesus, the, the narrative of, of God and, and his creation all the way to the end of the story in, in the lives of our own kids. It's a great starting point for helping to share the story of Jesus with your kids. So I'd encourage you to, to get get a copy and utilize that with your children if you don't have it. But I'm just going to read it to you this morning, and then we'll kind of get into the rest of the message. And and some of the illustrations and the words will be up on the screen behind me, so you can kind of enjoy some of that. But the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, she kind of defines this or names this chapter God's wonderful surprise. And here's what she said. She said, Jesus' friends were sad. They would never see their best friend again. How could this happen? Wasn't Jesus the rescuer, the king God had promised? It wasn't supposed to end like this. Yes, but whoever said anything about the end? Just before sunrise on the third day, God sent an earthquake and an angel from heaven. When the guards saw the angel, they fell down with a fright. The angel rolled the huge stone away, sat on top of it, and waited. At the first glimmer of dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other women headed to the tomb to wash Jesus' body. The early morning sun slanted through the ancient olive trees, drops of dew glittering on leaves and grasses, little tears everywhere. The friends walked quietly along the hilly path through the olive groves until they reached the tomb and immediately noticed something odd. It was wide open. They peered through the opening in the dark tomb, but wait, Jesus' body was gone. And something else, a shining man was there with clothes made from lightning. Don't be scared, the angel said. But they couldn't help it. They screamed anyway. The angel asked them, what are you doing here? This is a tomb, and tombs are for dead people. The women couldn't speak. Jesus isn't dead anymore, he said. He's alive again. And their hearts leapt. And then the angel laughed with such gladness that they felt for a moment as if they had woken from a nightmare. The other women rushed home, but Mary stayed behind. How could it be true? Jesus was definitely dead. How could he be alive? Just then, Mary heard someone else in the garden. 
Perhaps it was the gardener, she thought. He'll know where Jesus' body is. I don't know where Jesus is, Mary said urgently. I can't find him. But it was all right. Jesus knew where she was, and he had found her. Mary, only one person said her name like that. She could hear her heart thumping. She turned around. She could just make out a figure. She shaded her eyes to see, and she thought she was dreaming. But she wasn't dreaming. She was seeing Jesus. Mary fell to the ground. Sudden tears filled her eyes and great sobs shook her whole body. And all she wanted in that moment was to cling to Jesus and never let him go. You'll be able to hold on to me later, Mary, Jesus said gently, and always be close to me. But now, go and tell the others that I'm alive. Mary ran and ran all the way to the city. She had never run so fast or so far in all her life. She felt she could have run forever. She didn't even feel like her feet touched the ground. The sun seemed to be dancing and gleaming and bounding across the sky, racing with her and shining brighter than she could ever remember in the clean, fresh air. And it seemed to her that morning as she ran, almost as if the whole world had been made anew. Almost as if the whole world was singing for joy. The trees, tiny sounds in the grass, the birds, her heart. Was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was he even making death come untrue? She couldn't wait to tell Jesus' friends. They won't believe it, she laughed. She was right, of course. And that's where... Sally Lloyd-Jones kind of leaves off the story, and we'll maybe pick up there next week. But Mary, in this story, as, as Sally Lloyd-Jones tells it, and she kind of makes a compilation of all the gospel stories and brings them together, so it doesn't match exactly with what we would look at in, in John. And I encourage you to go back and read beginning of John 20, verses 1 through 22 or something in there. But Mary set out before dark. It was still dark when Mary went to go to Jesus' tomb in order to check on the body, make sure it was properly prepared for burial. It was still dark outside. And, and this wasn't just John telling us what time of day it was. It wasn't him just like helping us to understand the, the context of the situation. He was pointing out that, that it was still dark in Mary's heart. Like her heart was still like hopeless, devastated, and defeated. That it was still dark in the life of the disciples as they hid out in, in the in the city and, and waited to see what would happen next. Their hope and their, their promise for what would, co- what would come was, was dark and they were hopeless as well. And when Mary arrived at the tomb, we see that she saw an empty tomb or at least she saw a tomb with no stone there. It doesn't even tell us that she looked inside, but she made an assumption, not that Jesus was alive, but that Jesus had been taken, that someone had taken the body of Jesus and, and, and she didn't know where it had gone. Now, in this version, the, the one that Sally Lloyd-Jones kind of retells, she leaves out what I would say is a quite significant and also quite entertaining portion of, of John's recount of what took place in, in the day at, that Jesus was resurrected. So I want to read that to you this morning. It's found in, in John chapter 20, obviously, but it's verses uh, 2 through 10. And let me just read that to you really quickly. It'll also be up on the screen as well. It says, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples. This is after she saw that that the stone had been rolled away. She went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And if if you've been paying attention, you remember that that's kind of John talking about himself. He called himself the one that Jesus loved. And she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. 
So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Fantastic, John. Just point it out. Just be clear about it. Don't pull any punches. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying there in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, by the way, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, it would be easy to assume here that John is just being arrogant, that this is just a young man kind of being boastful and, and proud of his, of his athletic prowess or what, or what have you, but, or maybe even that he just dislikes Peter and just kind of wants to point out that Peter lost. He kind, of tells, he kind of points out some of Peter's mistakes in his gospel, so I don't know. I don't necessarily think that's what's going on, but it would be easy to assume that. In fact, the, the traditional assumption of what was taking place here is that John is actually just younger than Peter, and so obviously John would be the first of the tomb. There's a, a photo that Eugene, um, I can't remember the, last guy's, the guy's last name. I wrote it down here just in case. So Eugene Bernand in like the late 1800s painted this picture of, of Peter and John. And John is the one on the left, younger. Peter's the one on the right, just a little bit older. And that he would be the first one to arrive simply because he was younger. But this isn't the first time in John's gospel that, that John kind of seems to elevate himself where he seems to point out his superiority, seems to, pull, to point out the, the way he does things even, even maybe better or, or with more superiority than, than others. In fact, here's a couple of other examples. We saw when he was at the Last Supper with Jesus that it was John who reclined closest to, to Jesus. We also see that when Jesus was arrested and, and was taken to the, on trial before the religious leaders, John was given access to go in with Jesus and Peter had to be kept out in the courtyard by the fire. Even in this story, we, John points out that he was the first one to, to see and, and to believe. And then even in the, the days ahead, as we'll look in the next few weeks, when, when Jesus kind of comes back to his disciples as they're out fishing, it'll be John that, that recognizes Jesus at the shore and, and points it out to the rest of them. John does this time and time again in his gospel where he's pointing out his, how great he is. At least that's the way it appears, Right? But the reality is, is, is that it, it's not likely that he was just being arrogant and just trying to, to show off. But rather, I believe that his, it was an attempt for him to emphasize the authority of his witness. That he was the one who was so close to Jesus in some of the most amazing and significant moments in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that he would be like a credible witness. One who would be able to describe in a story who Jesus was, what he did, what he went through, and, and at the end of the story that he came out alive, resurrected, and king of the world. So John, rather than just being cocky, was maybe being um, just a good, a good witness. But of course, he, he arrived first. He arrived first to the tomb, but he didn't go in, which is fascinating in and of itself. Maybe he was scared. Maybe he was worried. Peter arrives on the scene and does the most Peter thing ever. He just goes straight in, right? He doesn't even look. He just straight into a tomb, right, That's where someone maybe has stolen Jesus' body. But he doesn't always think. He just kind of does. And when he does, he sees the, the linen cloth there. 
and the, the, the cloth, the linen that was over Jesus' head. He sees them just laying there without Jesus. Now, this is an interesting detail, especially if you believe that, Je- if the, for those who believe that Jesus had been taken away, for, who thought maybe his body had been stolen just so that they could fool everybody into telling them that Jesus was alive. But why would someone who was in a hurry to steal a body take the time to unwrap the body of its linen cloth and, and remove the, the shroud from his, his face? Why would they take that time if they were just trying to, to dispose of the body? It's interesting. But then... It, John points out that he himself comes in. Then he points out that the, the one who arrived first came in to, to see the things. And, and he gives a fascinating detail about that. He says that as he came in, he says he saw and he believed. Now, there's a lot of maybe debate or question about what did he mean by he believed? Because we assume that John already kind of believed in Jesus, like, like put his faith and trust in him in some way. But maybe here he was either believing that, that he, his body was taken or that Jesus was alive. We're not totally sure, but I love how N.T. Wright describes this moment and describes what, what was going on with John. And he said that, oh, he had, had had faith before. He had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He had believed that God had sent him, that he was God's man for God's people and God's world. But, but this was different. He saw and believed, believed that new creation had begun, believed that the world had turned the corner out of its long winter and into a spring at last, believed that God had said yes to Jesus, to all that he had been and done, believed that Jesus was alive again. You see, for John in this moment, everything changed. The world was a different place now. And so was his place within that world. It would be different now at this point. So Peter and John, they, they kind of came, checked it out, and then they left. They left Mary behind. If, if you go back and, and read the story, even as we kind of see it in, in the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones writes it, she stayed behind and, and kind of peered in, just weeping and crying, and probably just blubbering with, with tears, and, and inside the tomb, she sees two angels, one sitting at the, the head and, and at the foot of where Jesus' body would have been, would have been laid, and, and one of the angels says, why, why are you crying? And she says, I don't know where they put him. I don't know where he is. And then, it, then John tells us that she actually kind of turns a little bit and, and sees that there's another person there, and she says, do you know where he is? I can't find my, my master. Do you, do you happen to know where he is? And, and John points out that this person that's kind of maybe standing at the, the entrance to the tomb or off to the side, that it's actually Jesus, but that Mary doesn't recognize him. Mary doesn't recognize the, this Jesus, which is fascinating to me. This was someone that she knew, someone that she had spent time with, someone that she loved and adored, and, and that she, she obviously is just devastated by his death, and yet when she sees him, she doesn't recognize him. And there's maybe a few possibilities why that is. Maybe, you know, she had a lot of tears in her eyes. Maybe it just was blurry and she couldn't see. It's also realistic to think that maybe this was the last thing that she would have expected to have happened, right? Like this was the last thing in her mind that she had seen Jesus die, die and placed in the tomb. The last thing she was, would have expected was to see him alive. It actually reminds me of that video that says, you know, where the, the soccer players, the basketball players are passing the ball around and they say, count how many times the, the ball gets passed around and then they, and then, at the end, there's like a little, that bear that walks by, and the, what about the, 
the moonwalking bear. Maybe you haven't seen that video. Google it. It's fantastic. But, but it's the last thing you would expect to see in this video where you're trying to watch these passages is this bear moonwalking through the back of the thing. And, and it's, just, it's shocking. And maybe it's the same thing for Mary. She just was so shocked she didn't even realize and see that it was Jesus. It could have just been God not wanting her to recognize him yet. And maybe in some ways, you know, Jesus' body, it's, it's in this whole new condition. He was made new. It was the beginning of, of new creation. And maybe it was just so different from the, the beaten and broken body that Mary had seen that she just didn't recognize him for who he was. But whatever the reason was, Mary didn't recognize Jesus, that is, until he said her name. At that Mary turned. At that, Mary saw Jesus and she cries out, Rabboni or, or teacher. This is where you would insert like that mind-blown emoji where she's just like, I can't believe it's you. You see, for, for Mary, this was a significant moment. And I love the way that Frederick Bruner, a Bible commentator, how he describes this moment for Mary. He says, in the one or two seconds this turn took, I imagine the world shifting ever so slightly on its axis. And at about this turn, one second midpoint, this turns one second midpoint trajectory, history too moved almost imperceptibly from BC to AD. A second before this turn, there is a woman in the deepest human despair in the agonizing presence of inconquerable death. A second after the beginning of this turn, there is a woman in the deepest possible human elation in the presence of the death-conquering central figure of history. When she turned to him at this moment, human history took a turn to a responsible hope for vincibility of death and so to the conquest of meaninglessness. You see, for Mary in this moment, everything changed. The world was a different place, and her place in the world would be different as well. And then Jesus says something that's super interesting to her. He says, do not hold on to me. Don't, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended or gone up to the Father. Go instead to my brothers, to my siblings, and, and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Now, it's easy maybe for us, especially if we have young kids, to imagine Mary just kind of clinging to Jesus' feet the way that Lloyd-Jones describes it here, that she's just holding on to him, never wanting him to go. It's almost like a, like a little kid with separation anxiety. You've had that before, right, parents, where it's like you're, you're kind of trying to leave and you're dragging them out. And, and we can picture Mary just in this desperate state of not wanting to lose Jesus again. And so she's clinging to him and, and holding on to him. And, and yet in this moment, Jesus wasn't just an annoyed parent saying, okay, just, just let, let go he was trying to tell her something. He was letting her know that things are no longer the way they used to be. That he was now different. That their relationship now would be different. In fact, it would actually be better in so many ways. And that her life, that her own life would be different. He's saying, don't hold on to the way that things used to be. I'm doing a new thing in here. Don't hold on to the, to the past. Don't hold on to what you had expected Things are different now. And that was something that Jesus wanted Mary to share. You see, in this moment, Jesus made Mary the, the apostle to the apostles. He sent her with a message to tell his brothers, to tell his siblings. And this 
It was the first time that Jesus, in John's gospel, where he referred to his disciples as brothers, where he referred to his disciples as, as siblings. And the message that Jesus gave Mary to give to them, it was, it was fascinating. It wasn't, hey, I have risen from the dead, which is what we would expect. Like, go and tell them, I have risen from the dead. But his message wasn't that. Instead, he said, go and tell my siblings, go and tell my brothers, I am ascending, I'm going up to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. See, here in this moment to Mary and the message that Mary would then take on to the disciples, Jesus was revealing to them that there was a whole new world that's being established where they were siblings and where God is father. Essentially saying, we are family. Because here's the thing is that those who, who follow Jesus, they're welcomed into a new world where they can know God the way Jesus knew God. Where they can be intimate children with their father. Where they can know and experience love, the love of the father. You see, for the disciples who hadn't even heard this news yet and maybe wouldn't even understand it for a little bit, everything had changed in this moment. The world was a different place, and their place in the world was going to look different as well. Now, I, I mentioned it at the beginning of this, um, as I was talking at the beginning, that, that John refers to himself as the, the one that Jesus loved, the, the beloved disciple. And, and it's funny, right? Like, even to look at this story and see how he talks about himself, it's, it's funny. And, and we mostly laugh and brush it off as, as arrogance or or whatever, but it actually reminded me of, of a story that, that Natasha has told me, and she's told our kids, and probably has had this conversation with her own family at times, but it was a, when she was at uh, the funeral of, of her grandfather, and after the funeral, there was a, you know, a, a time to share a meal, and, and her and all of her cousins were sitting around, eating and, and talking and, and reminiscing everything about their, their grandpa. And, and she says that one of, one of her cousins points out and, and said something to the effect of, it, it was just great to know that I was his favorite. <laughs> and then everyone else kind of in succession said, no, 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 wait a second. I thought I was his favorite. And they just kind of kept going around and, and around. And, and it wasn't necessarily a competition, but the reality that to each one, their relationship with their grandfather felt like they were his favorite grandchild. In fact, today, Natasha would still argue that she was his favorite, and she would stand very strongly in that argument. But, <laughs> but what, if, what if John simply experienced the love of God through Jesus so deeply that he thought this, I'm the one that Jesus loved the most? That's not arrogance, that's assurance. And my guess is that if Mary had written a gospel, <laughs> she would have said the same thing. She would have referred to herself as, I'm the one that Jesus loved. If Lazarus had had a chance to write this gospel, Peter had had a chance to write this gospel, Thomas, I mean, you name any of his disciples, any of the people that spent time with Jesus, my guess is that they all felt like they were the, the one Jesus loved the most. Because it was the love of God in and through Jesus that changed everything for them. And it left them with a different place and a different purpose 
in the world. John would um, later capture this in his letter in 1 John chapter 4, where he says this. Oh, there it is. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You see, it's, it's our turn at this point in the story. Like we've been going through the Gospel of John for over a year now, and maybe if you haven't been here with us the whole time, you've kind of just picked up halfway. But, but it, now it's, it's our moment. It's our moment to, to realize that, that everything has changed, that for us, the world is now a different place, and our place in the world now is different, and it will continue to be different because of the way that Jesus has loved us and because of our desire to, and our acceptance of his invitation to come and, and to follow me. And so this morning, as we just kind of wrap up our time together, I, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. And these aren't questions that you can just, like, yes or no, check the box. But these are questions that you might take with you and, and just consider as you go back and maybe consider this story this week. Last week, we just sat in the darkness. Maybe this morning, you, you want to sit in this world-changing, future-changing, life-changing moment when Jesus rose from the dead, defeated death, and, and invites us to, to follow him into a, a new life, into a new way of being human here on earth. And so here's the question. It's like, what, what has changed for you as you've been inv invited into this story? And how is the world a different place for you because of Jesus' life his death, and his, res and his resurrection. And then how is your place in the world different? Let me ask you to, to stand with me as, as I close us in prayer this morning. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the way that you have changed everything in this world and you have invited us into your family through your son, Jesus, who willfully made his way to the cross, setting aside his own authority, setting aside his own everything and submitting to you, Lord, and submitting himself to the, to the cross so that our sin could be atoned for it, and so that our life could now be different. New creation, new life in this world. Our place, Lord, in this world, it's, it's, it's a different place now that, that, that you are alive, and because we have chosen to follow you, we thank you for that, that invitation, that opportunity to follow you into new life. And we ask that you would continue to, to equip us to fill us by your Holy Spirit, to continue to, to plant the, the seed of, of your word and truth into our life, and that you would continue to ripen that fruit and demonstrate it in and through us. Lord, we pray that, that we wouldn't just simply be satisfied to, to watch 
the world change, but to be a part of how you are changing this world in and through the body of Christ, the family of God, which we have been invited into. And so I pray that you would just give us wisdom and you would give us grace. Help us to, to celebrate this moment, Lord, when you changed everything and how you've invited us into it, Lord. We are excited to be a part of what you're doing. We're excited to see how you will continue to demonstrate your grace, your goodness, your love, your power, and your strength on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. God, we thank you for this day. We praise you and we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.